Welcome to the Raising Parents podcast, support for the journey of parenting. Our children are constantly growing and every day holds new challenges and opportunities. We believe that transformed parents positively impact their children's lives, and that's why it's critical that we keep growing in every way more and more like Christ. Informed by social science and Christian faith, the Raising Parents podcast is a practical resource to encourage and equip parents. We're a ministry of Highland Park Community Church, Casper, Wyoming. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, my guest is someone I know very well. It is my husband, Pastor Darren Adwell-Polger. Hello. Thanks for being with us yeah, here thanks today. thanks for having me. Awesome. I feel honored to be on your podcast. Well, today we are talking about a theology of work and of chores, and as our children would testify, I really like work. I think that's one of my family values is hard work. And so thank you for being here. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about work and how we can teach, train, and empower our children to work and serve in their home, in their community, in their neighborhoods, and in the world. So I'd like to start with the experience I had in college. I was a nanny for a Christian family that lived close to the college, and I would walk over there around 3.30 after school, and I would find... um, Organic milk that had been rotting on the counter all day. Cheerios, hundreds of them all over the floor. And this family, these kids were school-aged. Once high school, middle school, grade school, and they had left this house. Like, you know, just like like it had exploded. And every morning would be the same day. And my job would be to come over and sweep up these Cheerios, throw out the milk that had rotten. I would stack up the laundry, you know, four feet high on a table and they would take one right out of the middle and it would all fall on the ground again. And I remember the kindergartner would yell at me from the bathroom, come wipe my butt. (laughs) And I had not done a lot of childcare. So I was like, I will teach you how to wipe your hiney, but I am not getting paid enough to do that. So whether that was the right response or not, that was my 19 year old response. And so I remember coming home so exasperated from this times of being there because these problems repeated themselves every single time I was there. And I said to you, Darren, we were recently dating, and I said, if this is a Christian family, I don't want one. Yeah, I remember <laughs> you coming back, walking back, because you could walk from the campus, and sometimes you would, we would meet up, and you would just kind of have this blank stare on your face, like, oh my goodness, I just came back from the war zone. <laughs> and I'm like, man, okay, this is, family life is no joke, and Yet, we also had this experience where we were part of a worship team together in college, and we went, we met at this one family's house. I think they were Wheaton grads, I'm not sure, but they were playing games with the kids. The kids were engaged in the conversation. They were, like, making music together on the piano, and... They were respectful, obedient. Yeah, and and we looked at each other, and again, this is before, I mean, we're, like, what, 18, 19 years old, but we looked at each other and we're like, oh my gosh, this is a possibility of the way a Christian family can live. Like there were these super strong contrasts. And what's interesting is both had this faith component. And so it wasn't like being a Christian automatically made things better. And I think that's so key because we can have Jesus in our lives, but if we don't have training and we're not thinking about what we're doing in the intentionality. home, intentionality, the home can still be in chaos. We can love Jesus and be struggling in our home life. And so props to every parent and grandparent listening to this podcast, because by the fact that you're listening, you're saying, 
I want to do this well. I want to do this better. And I know since I was 13 years old, I was tuning into Christian radio to the family and parenting programs and saying, how do I have a Christian family? How do I do this better? How do I take what was good in my family of origin, but I want to add to it. I know I don't have enough. So we've got to work on this just like we work on our finances and we get help and we have coaches and our bodies and we train We've got to train ourselves for family life. So today we're talking about a theology of work and and chores for our home. So let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, back to the beginning. Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3. God is creating this beautiful earth that we live in. And the very first command that God gives humanity, Genesis 2.15, is to work it and to take care of it. To work it and to take care of it or in other translations, to cultivate and to keep. And there's just such a richness in those words. So the word for work in Hebrew is abad. And what's fascinating is that abad means both work and worship. And so the priests in the temple later on, they were working in the temple, but their work was worship. And this idea of that worship is singing to God like we do in church, but it's our lives. It's how we live. Like Paul says in Romans 12, right? Like to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Why? This is your spiritual act of worship. So you live it out. And so God put Adam and Eve to work the garden, to tend it, to keep it. And it was part of their worship. It was part of how they honored him by taking care of what they had given. And let me add to that, that this command to cultivate and keep, to work and to take care, it happened in Genesis 2. It happened before the fall. Pre-fall. So work was not a curse. The curse was, you know, you'll have to work so hard and and it's going to be really difficult to make it be better. Yep. Like when I think of, you know, trying to pick up our home, I'm like, this is definitely post-fall. Like we are trying so hard to to maintain this home space. But there's something that God put in us that thrives when we have something to apply ourselves to. Well, and even that, Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He created the earth, and he, he was hovering over the chaos. And so mm. part of God's creative act was to bring order to the chaos. So I hope it's not too much of a stretch to say, right? It, we are in the image of God, bringing order out of chaos. And so as many times as the house gets chaotic and messy, like it is a God honoring thing, I think, to bring order out of that chaos. And even as we've been doing this in our own house this weekend, I feel there's a spiritual peace, there's release, there's a clarity that comes as we get our physical house in order. It helps our mental and our spiritual house align as well. And I'll just be straight up and say this, like, it is challenging for me to keep a clean house. I didn't grow up in a system with a clean house. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of hoarding and a lot of clutter. So this is a, it is work for me. Like it is not intuitive. It is not natural. I am trying new strategies and we are applying ourselves as a team to, you know, to do this, to keep home and to cultivate and tend that house together. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, this is not easy for me. I am right with you. Well, and you use the word keep. And that's the second part of this, right? To to work, to abad, and to keep. And the word there is shamar. And what's cool is like in the priestly prayer where um, Aaron was to bless the Israelites, the Lord bless you and keep you and shamar over you, right? And so 
They were given, Adam and Eve were given, given a garden to cultivate, to tend, to keep, to make it fruitful. And what's interesting, just a couple chapters later, where Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God says, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I supposed to shamar my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to watch over him and protect him? And Cain's thinking like, no, that like, I'm doing that to the land, but he's my brother. And God's saying, no, it's all inclusive, right? Like, so it's the land, but it's your family. And so I think there is a theology here, not only of work, but a theology of keeping, protecting, guarding, um, and, and watching over our family members. And mm-hmm. here, that's that's what God confronted Cain with. And he didn't think that God's command to keep, to shamar over his creation, he didn't think that somehow included his family. And of course it did. So I love to apply this to our family. So we're not only keeping our homes in order, which is like stuff, food, clothing, laundry, but we're also caregiving and caretaking in those relationships sibling relationships, marital relationships, parent-child relationships. We're caring for the land, right? Our lawn, the snow, the leaves. We're caring for the animals that live in our home. Our daughter wishes more animals lived in our home. She's got a lot of stuffed animals. Yes, we have to be creative there. Awesome. Okay, so I believe that having a necessary and useful purpose in the home keeps us vital and vitalized. I know there's been times in my life where I've been disconnected for moments from those tasks and there's like a life energy that can kind of fade away when we don't have anything to do but it's our responsibilities that keep us tuned in and keyed into life and children need that as well I remember watching Thomas the Take Engine with my children this cartoon for kids and they would always say to Thomas Thomas you are a very useful engine and as a new mom I just thought that's weird why are they telling him he's useful um That just seemed like an odd way to praise him. But now I'm understanding that kids feel good about themselves Mm -hmm. when they contribute to their family. And if we think about the long scope of human history, kids have always had tasks. They brought water. They fed chickens. They tended, um, they went looking for eggs, you know. And here in Wyoming, we have lots of kids that grow up on farms and ranches and how hard, um, kids work in those situations, you know, tending the garden, tending the animals, but modern kids, we can get so disconnected from that, right? There's so much um, staring at screens and uh, finger exercise on video games. And so how do we help our kids know, like, we need you, you are a vital part of this family? Yeah, absolutely. The challenge for me personally in this is I like efficiency And I like things to be done kind of quickly in the right way first. And so it's just easy and feels like more natural for me to just kind of like, hey, there's something on the floor. I'm going to clean it up or I, you know, we need to eat. So I'm going to cook or the dishes are dirty. So I'm going to clean them. Like I feel like I have to catch myself and remember that they're a part of this family as well. And the better that I do it without them, the more I'm training them that they that we don't need them. And sometimes we can even say things with our words like, don't mess up the kitchen or this is easier without you. But kids come with a natural desire to help. But here's the challenge. When the child is in preschool, they have an inborn desire to imitate the parent and to help. If you're sweeping, they want to sweep. They have like the baby shovel for snow shoveling and the kitchen, the little broom. The lawnmower. When we were in Los Angeles, there was a museum um, called Noah's Ark and 
it had fake food. It was a huge Noah's Ark, and kids would play with the fake food. They'd serve each other meals. And the fun, the number one thing they wanted to do was use the brooms to sweep up the poop. Yes, there was fake animal poop, and kids would fight over who got the broom to sweep up the fake animal poop on Noah's Ark. So they have this desire to imitate, right? They want to be like mom and like dad. And it's so tempting to say like, no, you're slow. You're going to mess this up. But we need to nurture that. We need to find tasks simple enough and that aren't destructive where they can start to imitate us. Just like the scripture says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So our children's brains are actually imprinting on our behaviors, on our responses. So we need to start early um, and let them participate, let them help. So finding those things like, I need you to go to every room and grab the trash bag, like the little trash bags, and bring them back to mom or bring them back to dad. Or, hey, I need you to put one fork next to every plate, finding these little things that they can do to help. Now, I've been interviewing awesome parents here at our church in preparation for this podcast, and I heard an amazing story about a kid that wanted to help. He was a preschooler, and the mom noticed that she saw some water around the living room, like on the TV stand and on some other areas, and then she could kind of trace the water back, and she found her son, and there he was, a four-year-old, on a hoverboard with a cup of water and the toilet bowl brush. And he had been inserting the toilet bowl brush into the cup of water and then was hoverboarding around the house, quote, cleaning things. <laughs> and so this mom's amazing. She's one of our children's ministry leaders, and she did not crush the desire to help. But she did teach. She said, you know what? Teeth have a special brush and hair have a special brush. And the toilet is so special, it has a brush all itself. So... That toilet bowl brush is just for the toilet. But she took this desire and then she directed it into a helpful task. I have a friend that would give her kid a, a bottle of vinegar and newspaper and be like, have at this huge window. Like, you know, it's not going to be great, but these are very cheap products. And they clean you can, the window with a newspaper? Yeah, you can use a newspaper as paper towel. Oh, it's knew? very uh, earth friendly never and knew. vinegar. So she would just let them kind of practice, right? So it takes practice to get better at these skills. You know, in the missions world, um, there's this concept called paternalism. And that's kind of like the big no-no, right? Um, and paternalism basically means to do for someone else what they can and should do for themselves. And in, like, from the North American context, it's so easy and with good intentions to go in and just say, hey, we're going to help solve this. You guys need a roof on the church? We're going to come do it. You guys need to build X, Y, and Z? We're going to come do it. You need this? We'll send you money. And again, the intention is good. And I believe that sometimes the impact is good. But there's an, a flip side to that when you look at short-term gain versus the long-term impact. Short-term gain, you might get it done quicker. Again, that goes back to my desire for efficiency. But long-term impact... There's a book, a well-known book in the missions world that's called When Helping Hurts. And there are times where we can, out of good intentions, try to help but actually be hurting. So from the mission standpoint, paternalism, the interesting thing about that is the word pater is father, right? And so it's, it's using an analogy of the home where the parents are basically doing the work instead of training, equipping, and empowering. And again, short term, it might be faster, but long term, 
the kids might not grow into their potential the way that they could. And we've always smiled about this. There's an element of culture in this. We grew up uh, raising our children in a very diverse community in Los Angeles, and we would smile about the um, the Asian dads that would, um, you know, they would carry their sons on their backs on the way home, and or their it, backpacks, or their backpacks. Yeah. And and your dad's from India, and and I've talked with other families of immigrants um, from Latin America, and the part of the concept was it was so hard for me as a kid. And I want to give my child something better. And so the heart is so good. And that's not universal for every Asian or um, Latino family. But when a family is coming from poverty or from struggle, there's a desire. Like, I want this next generation to have it better. But I guess what I'd like to add to that is we do not do our children a favor when we do not train them for real life tasks. Because they're going to be husbands and wives fathers and mothers, employees, children of God, and they're going to need to work. And I know moving away to college, like on every dorm room floor, there's somebody that's never washed their underwear before, right? <laughs> like there's someone that puts in their red t-shirt and gets pink underwear. There's someone that goes to the store and buys like 500 pairs of underwear because they can't figure out how to wash them. And so it's empowering for our kids when we teach them the skills they need to be effective in real life. Um, anthropologist Margaret Mead, she studied in Samoa and she was exploring this idea that was prevalent in psychology then that adolescence was a time of storm and stress, of, of conflict and chaos and difficulty. And she saw in Samoa that the women, the older women and mothers and aunties and grandmas were training the younger women for the tasks that they would experience in life. She was training them to be, you know, wives and mothers and caretakers and house. Well, and didn't also Margaret Mead compare two different societies? She did. In her first um, anthropological visit, she was in Samoa, and she saw a society where um, the gender roles were very strict there, so it's a little bit different than in the United States. But the men were being trained, the young men were being trained by the fathers for the tasks that would be required of them to provide for their families and to... Um, provide food and build shelter and the women were being trained as well and so in that context and then next she went to another island nation and in that nation they didn't have this habit of discipling or training the teenager and so in both nations um, the young people married off and in the first in Samoa there was like a happiness and a carefree and positivity as they took on these adult roles that they had been trained and equipped to do. And in the second context, it was not like that. There was so much struggle and anxiety and anger because they were trying to do tasks that they had seen, but they had never practiced. Yeah, and my recollection of it is that she went and compared these different societies and, and first hadn't come to this conclusion. She just saw the behavior, particularly of adolescents, that on one of the islands there was just a sense of like craziness, out of control, wild um, youth that were just kind of running everywhere. And the other ones, there was much more order. There was much more joy. There was a carefree. And in her own, and Margaret Mead's considered one of the, if not the first anthropologist, it, her conclusion was the thing that made these two societies different was that one gave clear expectations, if you will, chores, responsibilities to their kids. And the others didn't. The other society just kind of let them do whatever. And she saw, based on her own scientific study and conclusion, where that led 
to the difference in these cultures. And Margaret Mead made applications to American culture and to parenting. And I can relate to that. As a new mom, I remember um, being a newlywed and I had never changed a diaper in my life. So we're growing up in smaller families, less extended families. So we have less opportunity to learn some of these skills. And I love that women have opportunities for study and for work in diverse fields. But if we choose to have children, and if we choose to have children, we are going to do some parenting tasks and maybe we feel more unequipped than ever for those tasks. So we're learning on the job and there are such great resources to get help. And this idea of the older teaching the younger is from scripture as well. In Titus 2, it says this, older women likewise are to be reverent. And it goes on to say this, and this way, the older women are to train young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure managers of their households. And then it says, if they do these things, the word of God will not be discredited. It says in verse six, in the same way, urge younger men to be self-controlled. And then it goes on to say, if we do these things, showing integrity and dignity and wholesome speech, we are above reproach and people will have nothing bad to say about us. I go back to thinking about that first family. They were doing the best they can, but it wasn't working. And so we can apply these principles. What do we need to, to train in our children, to empower them? What can they do for themselves to be functional adults and to be functional for the, for in our family, but also for the family they are growing up to? And so to the family they're growing up to have. So we can think about the developmental stages. Eric Erickson talks about um, phases of growth. So we don't want to, you know, look at a three-year-old and say, hey, go wash the car. It's not going to work, you know, or make this meal. But from 18 months to three years old, children are working through this idea of autonomy versus shame and doubt. So they're wanting to take some initiative and they're wanting to make an impact and start to help in their families. Maybe that's just, you know, the parent holds the box and says, put your books in here, put your toys in here. And we have a little three minute cleanup time. From ages three to five, kids are working through initiative versus guilt. So they're wanting to take initiative, just like that four-year-old on the hoverboard. He was taking initiative to clean his house. Like a superhero. Like a superhero. Yeah, he was rocking it. He was awesome. And I love how the parent didn't fall into that trap of being what they call the critical-eyed parent, saying, that's not right. You didn't do it right. You made a mess. So the parent didn't shame, but they did correct and teach. And then from ages... Um, five to 13, children are developing competency. They're comparing themselves to others at sports, at home, at school, and they're developing a sense of industry. And if they don't have the skills, then they start to develop a sense of inferiority. So I think what's so key is in these school age years, five to 13, sometimes we can get a little lazy because it's not as stressful as a teenager and it's not as exhausting as the toddler. But this is like the key training zone. So the things that we pour in in elementary school, we will reap the fruits of when they become teenagers. And I'm thinking of a funny story. Our, the simple task that every kid had when they were young in our family was put the silverware away. Yeah. So our son, uh, I don't know, he might have been eight or nine. And we, <laughs> we used to put the silverware in this like plastic cover that we would go in the microwave when we would dump it out, like right when the 
uh, washing machine, wash, dishwasher is done. We'd put the silverware into this thing. And it's kind of waiting there for the kids to put the silverware in the drawer. And the nice thing is like we have one of those plastic um, containers where you put in the silverware and it's like the forks go here and the knives go here. So it's, it's pretty structured, a right? Basic sorting activity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, we were there in the kitchen and, um, Hey son, put the silverware away. And he's like, I can't. And we're like, no, put the silverware away. It was kind of getting, you know, exacerbated here. And he said, I can't, why not? Uh, the silverware's on fire. <laughs> and so what had happened was we had one of those gas stoves and that little plastic container that we put the silverware was resting on the stove. And I guess we had left it on. Well, that plastic container had started to melt and it caught fire. And not huge, right? But it was like flames coming up out of yes, it. Yes. And the plastic of the container became like airborne and vaporous and like landed on every particle of our kitchen and was so difficult to remove. So we get a pretty good kick out of reminding ourselves of that every time we ask the kids to put the silverware away. And that has to rank up there as one of the best excuses why not to do a chore at that particular time. Yes. It's on fire. The chore is on fire. <laughs> and they only got to use that once. I don't think we've had another one like that. Yes. It's like the dog ate my homework. Right. Of Happens once, lives in lore. Yes. And you can't keep going back Family to it. Family lore. And so I love how children can develop competency over time. So the same child that I had to train over and over again to put the silverware away now looks at when a younger sibling does the silverware way, puts the silverware away and says, you know, like, oh, the spoons are not perfectly aligned, right? So the child has developed a sense of excellence, a sense of competency. They can even train a younger sibling on that same task. So what are simple things that we can train our kids to do in those elementary years? Um, clean the bathroom. Specific lists are really helpful. Check off sheets. Um, picking up their own bedroom, personal hygiene, dressing themselves, taking care of their own bodies, outdoor chores such as snow, lawn, leaves, vacuuming. There's so many basic tasks. And I love the basic cooking tasks. That was a fun way that I connected with our kids in the kitchen. I cook so that we can eat. And I enjoyed sharing those cooking tasks with our kids. And the fruit of that is now that they're getting a little bit older, We've got a high schooler, a middle schooler, a grade schooler right now. I can give a recipe and say, hey, I need you to make this. And so at Thanksgiving, I remember when they were little, I had like these five side dishes. We'd have every Thanksgiving and I would make them all myself. And then as they got older, each kid would make one with me. And we did that a number of years. And now I hand the kid the recipe. I point to the ingredients and they've done it enough. They each make the dish by themselves. So it's exciting because we are beginning to bear that weight of family responsibilities together. And I have this thing when I cook um, about meat, like hot meat. When the food's ready, like I want people to sit, right? And so a lot of times what will happen is I'll make the meal and it's like, okay, everybody, let's go, you know, it's ready. Like, you know, enjoy it hot, right? And and so people are like coming out of the bathroom or cleaning up their room or whatever. But what's funny is now when they cook and it's ready... <laughs> Like, they're like, you better get over here, you know? And it's like now they have that sense of urgency because they've put in the work to prepare the meal. Yes, you have to say the phrase. Hot meat, butts in the seat. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, when it's out, like, again, I, you know, we could, we, we have a lot of grace, but when there's hot meat ready, like, it just, you know, 
You put in all that work and you want it to be eaten at its best. And that's one of those things that happens as kids take responsibility in the home, they start to notice. So once a kid, you know, straightens the living room and then another child comes and messes it up, the child who did the straightening will say something that sounds parental, like, I can't believe that people leave their things around here in this exactly. home. Exactly. And so those are just fabulous moments that say, oh, you, you, um, you tried adulting and now you're noticing. Yeah. We have this thing uh, we call the general. I say, hey guys, the general called and we need to pick up. So general pickup is his name, general yes. pickup, and we are reporting for duty. And so general pickup is like all hands on deck. That is not time to clean your own personal room. That is time to do common spaces, which is basically hallway, living room, kitchen. And so the general knows and the kids don't like it when it's like, hey, guys, it's time for the general. The general called. <laughs> so they're like, oh, no, not Sometimes the Sometimes we play music like here comes the general from Hamilton or something to spice it up and say like we're the fun, loud music gets it going. And I will say as a mom, it makes a world of difference when dad does that pick up with us. It, it, it shifts from an uphill battle to like, we are all doing this. There is nowhere to hide. And we all start um, with another one of my kids. We call it zapping is putting things away. So when they're little, I'd be like, zap this shoe back, zap this book back. And so the kid is like zapping all these things that need to get put into their special spot. Another tip that we got. Oh. Well, I was just going to say that there is a synergy that happens when everyone's working together, right? So it's like that concept of man hours, as they call it, people hours, right? So it's like if I'm cleaning the house for 15 minutes by myself, that's 15, right? But if, if we're all five of us are cleaning in that same 15 minutes, we get done over an hour's worth of work. And so there's just an energizing factor of like, hey, these common areas, we all live in them. This is our space. This is all of our stuff in here. So let's work together. And I think that's really helped. That's made a big difference. And these are shifts that are happening over time in our family as roles are changing. So our children are growing from infancy to elementary years to teenage years and also our roles are changing i was a stay-at-home mom for many years but now i'm a full-time grad student i have two part-time jobs so i can't spend my day picking up after everyone and when i started to see like wow i used to fold laundry for like three hours a week there was that much laundry and so when a task is so heavy on one member of the family it needs to be shared by everyone who wears laundry like, if you wear clothing, you should have a part of this process. Yeah, if you eat food, you should be part of cleaning the kitchen. Exactly. And so we try to divide up these tasks. So with laundry, um, our, we had something called the laundry folding party, which I learned from a friend. So I would wash it, dry it, and have it in a basket. And then we would all come to the table, and I would throw people's laundry at them. And so you would catch your laundry, fold it, put it in a basket, and put it away. And so it was this efficient way, instead of me folding for three hours... It would take 20 minutes and we'd all fold our own. And then one kid would be responsible for all the washcloths. So you could train for that. And one person for all the towels. And so we were um, dividing it up that way. And then as they became teenagers, teenagers are tall enough, big enough, strong enough. They get to do their own laundry. And so that's a transition preparing them for leaving the house. And again, it's great boundaries because it's like, if you want clean clothes, you can wash them. You know, if you don't mind wearing the same thing every day for a week, then you don't have to, but it, it shifts to them rather than us saying you should do this. Yes. When you notice your children being really ungrateful for a task that you're doing for them, maybe they need to start doing that task 
Um, another fun thing we did. Oh, so we're talking about allowance. So there's different theories of allowance, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. Um, we've had times where we have. We've had times where we haven't. Um, I just want my children to know that there are certain things that need to be done. And no one's paying me to make dinner every day or to take a shower or to, well, I was going to say to go to work, but I do get paid to go to work. But there's so many tasks that happen in the home that require effort. And so what we don't want to do is to make the mistake of our kid thinking, every time I do something in this house, you should give me money for it. So I heard a comedian say that her mother, who was from Mexico, would say to her, you want allowance? I allowance you to live in this house. I allowance you to eat dinner. And so right now we are not paying our children allowance. I've talked with a number of families and different ideas for different reasons at different times. I laugh because many of the families that are in ministry are not paying allowance. And part of it is there's no money to pay allowance. Um, but we're teaching and training them like you live here, you're eating this meal. Everyone has a role. So when it comes to dinner, there's a group of chores that surround dinner. So one person is setting the table, and that's our youngest. One person is making the meal, and that's either myself or my husband or one of the older children. One person is cleaning off the table, another person sweeping under the table, another person's loading the dishwasher, unloading the dishwasher. So we have like what 10 tasks that surround a meal, and we're all taking one of them. And we're trying to not leave the kitchen until... It's done. So we say, no man left behind. We're going to finish this task together. Yeah. And the other thing with allowance is what I, again, as Amy said, every family is going to tackle this differently. The, the positive benefit is at a young age, kids start to learn to manage money and learn what the value of a dollar and those kinds of things, if they have it. Um, I, my philosophy is that paid work is typically what happens outside of the home. Now, we live in the Zoom, you know, post pandemic era where everyone's kind of working from home and that kind of thing. But for the most part, like work happens out there in the world. And so um, there's a number of little jobs that our kids have gotten from a young age, everything from walking dogs to raking leaves to mowing lawns to shoveling snow. And, and they're learning that, um, that that's, that's where money comes from. It doesn't just get handed to them. So I think that's why we've made our decision in that regard, plus the, the obvious element of um, having that margin um, or not. But we've tried to encourage them to find that outside. So when they get money, either from allowance or from the outside, we establish 10% of this is your giving back to God through the tithe. And then a percentage goes for saving for something. And that could be a bike or it could be college or it could be, you know, another saving goal they have. And then a portion of that is for spending. And depending on the amount of income that they're having, those percentages of spending and saving can vary. So it's exciting because we are raising humans that are going out into the world. And I have one story to share as we close. Uh, we run an Airbnb in our basement. And one of the benefits of that is we are really good at making beds. Uh, we make beds almost every single day. And so I remember my my son was helping me make the bed, and we have timed this thing. We can make a whole bed in like two minutes and 12 seconds. He timed it, and like every movement is synchronized. And so he was at a friend's house, and the mom said, hey, I haven't made your bed yet. You're sleeping in the guest room. The sheets are on the bed. And my son said, I can do that. I make a bed every day. 
And then after he slept in the bed he made, he stripped the sheets because he knew that that was the next step. So um, the friend's mom told me, and that was like a super win. And then that mom, and then my son told me, well, she made me a hot breakfast. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know mothers didn't know that did happens. that. And I was like, you have amnesia. I used to do that for at least 10 years of your life. But the goal, what the goal is, you know, roles are shifting in our family. There's a lot of two, two, two career families or single parents. We have, um, Things that have to be done, right? We have chores in the house. We have jobs that we have to do. And so we have to pull together to get this done. It's not one person's work. It's everyone's work. Yeah, going back to Genesis 2, cultivate and keep. God put them in a garden. And we can say our homes, our families, our communities, that is our garden. We are called to abad, meaning work and worship, one thing. And we are called to shamar to protect, keep over, guard, watch, not only our stuff, not only the physical area, but each other in that. Like, And as we cultivate that, the kind of family that we have is what we cultivate. And, and going beyond the physical stuff of, of a clean house, there's a whole nother podcast, right? But how do we treat each other? What does it look like to cultivate kindness in the home? What does it look like to be our brother and our sister's keeper, to guard, to watch, to protect? Like, Again, all of that comes from the very beginning. These are the initial commandments God gave to humanity as a way to honor, steward, protect, respect, and bless the creation and the place where he's planted us in. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our listeners for sharing this time with us. We'd like to end with a little prayer. We have a prayer for your family. We're so grateful for you. And we just want to lift your family before God. Jesus, we thank you for the parents listening. We thank you for the homes and houses in which they work and worship. We pray that you will teach their children and help them train their children that work is worship. Thank you, God, that we can serve you as we protect and guard our homes and we train the next generation. God, we want to be useful to you in your kingdom. And help us start in those closest places, the closest relationships, to serve God and to serve others. I ask your blessing on the parents listening, that you will give them wisdom and insight, discernment, give them everything they need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would put people in our lives that will continue to train and encourage us as we train and encourage others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.